We're so glad that you're here this morning. If you could go ahead and make your way to your seat. We'll go ahead and begin. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 7. Last week, Matt led us through chapter 6, and Stephen being chosen as one to serve, and then he's seized by the chief priests and the Pharisees. And he is accused of many things, of uh, speaking against Moses and the law and this holy place. We don't have the verse up on the screen, so if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Stephen is being accused of many things, of not ceasing to speak against this holy place and the law. And then we come to Acts chapter 7 and verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they will come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob to the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent a summons to Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver for the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there were, arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? 
Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heavens, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? Did During the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua, When they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped up their ears and rushed together as one at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, 
he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us an historical account like this for our good, for our encouragement, for our edification, that we might see who you are, that you want, we might behold you, that we might see that, Jesus, you truly are worth dying for. Father, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear from you, and you would give me grace as I speak this morning, and give grace to all who hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A long passage like that can be a little hard to follow at times. If you're coming through the book of Acts, if you read through the book of Acts, a passage like that can kind of take you by surprise. And, and, and maybe if you're in your morning quiet times, you, you're reading through it, and then you find your mind wandering and drifting. Maybe you found that that was the case as Mario was reading a moment ago, no matter how well he, he read the passage. Last year, my son was given this uh, radio-controlled helicopter. And it was a great little helicopter. It's a lot of fun. It works wonderfully now that we figured out how to use it. But the instructions for it were a little difficult to understand. They were, it was even made more challenging by the fact that they were originally written in a, in a very strange language, at least strange to us, and then translated. And they, they weren't translated by people who knew what they were doing, though. And so it, it, we, we felt like if I get this wrong it's going to result in the death of my children. Or, you know, if I get this right, the, the, the instructions read as if my kids are going to be transformed into a new person. It, there was something lost in the translation of those instructions. It sounded like it either had the power to make your life incredible or destroy it entirely. And, and because of, because of the, the difficulty, it, it made it so that I got frustrated when we sat on the shelf for about a year. And so we just got it out recently, and we started flying it, and it's great now that we understand it, and I'm, I'm not even looking at the instructions anymore. Um, in contrast to, to imperfect, poorly written instructions by people who didn't know what they were doing, the Bible is not written like that. The Bible is written by men who were inspired. God breathed out inspiration to men, and then it's faithfully translated, but... We can feel that way with sometimes when we approach passages like this. We can feel like it's difficult to understand because they take a little bit of work sometimes. But in contrast, the Bible, beautifully written with excellent translations, although it does require some work, if we understand God's Word, it can truly change our lives for real. It really will transform us. And, and I would posit that this morning, if you really understand this passage in Acts, it will, it will change the way that you look at who Jesus is, and it will change the confidence that you have in Him for the Christian walk. When you read this, this sermon in Acts 7, we have to remember that we're, we're 2,000 years removed from the culture and context in which Stephen preached. And so we do need to do a little bit of work and background to figure out what in the world is Stephen saying. And, and, and if you're like me, when I first read this passage, I remember thinking, whoa, what, what in the world is Stephen getting at? Is he just giving us a history lesson here? Why, this, why is Stephen recounting this long history of the children of Israel? Like, don't the Sanhedrin already know that? Throughout the years, if you have ever felt like that, you're not alone throughout the years that various people have misunderstood, haven't gotten it, and have just kind of not done the work required. George Bernard Shaw, a famous author, playwright, and economist, a Nobel Prize winner, he actually missed the point of Stephen's passage altogether. A very bright man, but he missed it. He wrote, in a, in a preference to Androcles and the lion, he wrote, he called Stephen, he says, Stephen is a quite intolerable young speaker. I can't imagine writing that about the Bible and about someone in the Bible, but he called Stephen a tactless and conceited bore. He accused Stephen of delivering an oration to the council in which he inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of Israel with which they were presumably well acquainted already as he was. Maybe that's how you have been tempted to think. 
Let me help you. He, he, he's wrong. George Bernard Shaw, he was wrong. And so, so, so many others. Um, Stephen is actually making a very brilliant defense, but you have to hang with it. You have to, to figure out what in the world is he doing? What is he talking about? And you have to remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Sanhedrin, who were the leaders of Israel, who were well-versed in Old Testament history. For us today, we're not as well-versed by default in Old Testament history. We don't understand what's going on. And yet Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down what Stephen said for the church then to be encouraged. And the Holy Spirit intends for us to be encouraged. This is not just a history lesson. So don't, you know, I remember all those times in history class where I would just kind of check out and fall asleep. And I kind of wake up at the end and I'd read the Cliff's Notes and I'd pass the test. That, that's, not, that's not the intent of this passage. This is not just a history lesson. This is actually meant to magnify who Jesus is. For us to see that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That Jesus is the one who replaces the temple. And you have to understand what's the accusations of Sanhedrin. So let's look back in your Bibles to Acts 6, verses 13 and 14. Acts 6, verses 13 and 14. We do have this one on the overhead for you. It says, And they set up false witnesses who said... Here's their charge. Here's what Stephen's responding to. And you have to keep that in in mind, the entire argument. He says, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. So the charge is that he spoke against the temple and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So the charge is that he was speaking blasphemous words against the temple and against the law. And so what does Stephen do in this very long passage? He is setting out to show them that Jesus, which is really the, the big picture, the big idea of this whole passage, is that Jesus replaces the temple. He replaces the temple and the law and that he is worth dying for. That this truth, this truth that Jesus replaces the temple and the law, it's worth dying for. And it actually affects our Christian lives as well if we understand that Jesus replaces the Old Testament temple system and, and He fulfills the law. And if you grasp those things, it will, it will revolutionize the way that you think about Jesus and the confidence that you have in Him when you do face opposition and difficulty. The temple, it was a magnificent place. We can't really understand how beautiful it was because all that's left today is just one wall that they wail at. Well, they, they mourn the destruction of the temple now. But the temple was this beautiful place. It was, it was covered in marble. It was, it was adorned in gilded gold. It was, it was beautiful. It was astounding in its architecture. It was one of the moderns of the world at that time. But don't misunderstand they, they, didn't, they didn't hold the temple in high esteem because it was such an architectural marvel. They held it in high esteem because God had promised something to the people of Israel. He promised that he would place his name in the temple, that, he would, that he would, his presence would be there, and that they could come to him in the temple. And so, for the people of Israel, they revered and held the temple in high esteem and longed for the temple because God said his presence would be there. David, in Psalms, Psalm 27, he sang of this, and he longed to see God's face and live in God's presence. And so he says in Psalms 27, 4, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell. It's something he could never do, but something he longed for that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. That was a rite that was only reserved for priests. And, and David longed that he might inquire of God's face, that he might dwell there, that he might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, something that in the Holy of Holies only the high priest could do. It was right of David and the Israelites to to desire God's presence, to be grateful for His presence with Him in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But what Israel had done over the many years is they had, they had gone from seeing that this is the place where we encounter God to thinking that if this place 
stands, then that means God is blessing us. And if this place is destroyed, then that means that God has left us. And the temple actually became a a place of idolatry. It became a thing that they worshipped the temple and they failed to worship God. So they revealed it so highly that they thought if this temple was torn down, that his presence would, would leave because somehow God's presence is confined to the temple alone. And they misunderstood the entire Old Testament. And so Stephen schools them. He gives them a lesson on, on where is God's presence and is it tied to the temple. And so he shows them that he's not talking about the destruction of the temple, but he's talking about the replacement of the temple with something better, with Jesus, who is the temple, the way that we access God. And so he shows them that Jesus is really two ideas he's getting at in his sermon. You can boil all of Stephen's sermon down to really two main ideas that he, he gives to us. And, and Luke adds a third. But Stephen, the two ideas he says is that Jesus replaces the temple. That's, that's the thread that he's giving to us. And then the second idea that, that Stephen gives to us is that Jesus fulfills the law. And then Luke, the third thing we're going to see is that Luke is saying that Jesus is worth dying for, and he shows us that in the example of Stephen. And there's really four things. So if you want to understand this passage, you can break up, and please look down your Bibles, follow along with me so you can see where we're getting this from. And I would encourage you, whenever you hear good preaching or any kind of preaching, um, test it by the truth of God's Word to make sure that what's being taught is coming from God's Word. So you can see in your Bibles in section 2, through eight, in verses 2 through 8, we can see that he's talking about Abraham and the patriarchs. In verses 9 through 18, he's talking about Joseph and the exile period in Egypt. Verses 19 to 43, he's talking about Moses, the exodus in the wilderness. And in verse 45 to 50, he's highlighting David and Solomon. So what is he doing? Why is he bringing up these four major eras in Israel's history? He's giving them a lesson and saying that in every one of the key eras of Israel's history, God's presence was not confined to the temple. God's presence was not limited to a specific place. God, in fact, was with his people in each one of the major eras. Abraham and the patriarchs, the founder of the faith. Joseph in the exile appeared in Egypt for 400 years. Moses in the exile, I mean, Exodus in the wilderness. And then David and Solomon. In each of those times, God was not confined. God was not confined to the temple. Look in verse 2. We'll see, beginning with the period of Abraham and the patriarchs. Verse 2, God is the one who manifests himself. He manifests himself to Abraham. He says he appears to Abraham when Abraham was in Ur. Don't don't lose sight of that. What is he saying? What's Stephen getting at? He's He's saying, you're missing the point. God doesn't only appear in in a physical place, in a physical temple, and he doesn't only appear in In Jerusalem, he appeared to our father Abraham in Ur, in a foreign, pagan, hated land. And God wasn't limited by Abraham's location. And then it says that Abraham moved to Haran, a place, again, outside of the promised land. And yet God was with him. And God moved him to Canaan, but then he didn't get to stay there. He moved him to Egypt and then to back again. And throughout all of this, if you think about it, Abraham is covering, the, if you have a map of the Middle East, Abraham's covering the entire Fertile Crescent. And Stephen's saying, no matter where he went, starting off in a pagan land, coming through Canaan, going back to another pagan land, and coming back again, no matter where he was, God's presence was with Abraham. And his presence wasn't limited to a place. And he kind of draws the attention to that. And he says, Abraham didn't even have a foot of soil. You think that if this temple is replaced, there'll be problems? Abraham didn't even have a foot of soil, and yet God had given him his promise. And then he talks about the two promises that God had given to him, the promise of land and the promise of offspring, but then Abraham never saw that promise. He only had a tomb given to him. And then the offspring, he he saw just the very beginning of And then look in verses 6 and 7, God told Abraham his descendants would be enslaved and inflicted in a foreign land. This wasn't somehow an accident on God's part. God moved his people out. Very beginning in verse 3, 
Um, God's telling Abraham to go out from this land. And then in verses 6 and 7, God's saying, and I'm going to move you out again. I'm going to move your entire people out to the land of Egypt. And they're going to be there and afflicted. And God will judge that nation. They'll come back to the land. But this captivity, it won't be outside of God's plans. It's a part of God's plan to begin with. And so he shows that God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision as a sign of the covenant but it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the temple. Stephen's showing before there was any holy land, God made a holy people, and he promised to be with them. Then look in verse 9. Stephen moved from the founding father of, of God's people to a, a, a savior figure, really, of God's people. And it says in, in 7 and verse 9, it says that, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but... Here again, here's the theme. Here's what, here's what Stephen's getting at. But God was with him. But God was with him. And so we see that all throughout Joseph and the exile period in verses 9 through 19, even though Joseph, he was a foreign slave. He was, he was a foreign slave in, in, a, in, a, in a hated household. He was a prisoner. He was in bondage. He, he had no access to the physical temple. He had no access to the Holy Land. And yet, God was with him. God wasn't limited to a place. And Stephen makes that, that point clear. And he does something that must have been infuriating to the Sanhedrin. He drove that point home six times because he mentions Egypt six times to, as if to say, Egypt, that place, that, that place that's abominable to, uh, to us, that place that's hated, our enemies, Egypt, that is where God was present. And he drives it home six times. And then in verses 11 to 16, God moves the whole family that become the nation of Israel and save them from starving. He moved them out to the promised land. And he tells Jacob to go down to Egypt, even though he had told Isaac to don't dare leave the land of Israel, he moved Jacob out and he moved him into a different land, into a foreign land. And yet God promised that he would be with Jacob in Egypt. Not only that, even though all the fathers of the tribes of Israel, they died in Egypt. And Stephen's drawing attention to that, saying they didn't get to come back. And yet God was with them. That's our patriarchs. God wasn't confined to the temple. They never returned to the land alive. Only their bodies were brought back eventually. And then in verse 17, God's causing the people to increase and to multiply in Egypt. And Stephen shifts again from the father Abraham and Joseph down to Moses. And so he's showing that all throughout the major epochs in Israel's history, God was not confined. He was not constrained. He always made his presence with his people. And so we see through Moses in verses 19 to 22, it says that, that Moses was beautiful to God and that he was kept alive by God and protected. Even though he was exposed, he was protected by God directing his little, his little boat to the daughter of Pharaoh so that God was there with him. Not only that, God made sure he got the best education possible. It, it puts Harvard and Yale to shame. Back in those days, it was, it was probably the, the best possible education on the entire planet. God sent him there. God grew him in wisdom that God would use later to help him lead the people. He wasn't suffering. What's Stephen showing? He's saying God's people didn't fail to thrive because they were outside of the promised land. Why they thrived is because God was with them. And so Moses decides to, to go see what's going on with his people, and he sees them being mistreated, so he goes to his, his, this person's defense, and he kills an Egyptian. Now look down at verse 25 in your Bibles. It says in Acts 7, 25, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So Moses, he goes away to another foreign land. He runs away because he's afraid that he'll be found out and that he'll be killed himself by Pharaoh. And so he goes away to another foreign land and he lives in the desert, in the wilderness. He was across the Jordan. He was out of Egypt's domain. He was away from Canaan too. He was actually even further now, <clears throat> further now 
And the land was eventually called Midian by the Israelites. But God's not confused. God's not lost. God, God's not thinking, oh no, where did Moses go? He, where did he go? He didn't need GPS tracking to find Moses. He was with Moses all along, even though Moses may not have known it. And so Stephen's drawing attention again to say, after 40 years, God is still with Moses. And how do we see that? Well, he gives the illustration of the burning bush. God has an angel light a bush on fire and appear to him in a, in a burning bush in the desert. It's a pretty unlikely place, according to the Jews, to encounter God. But God speaks to him face to face. He, he speaks to him personally. And he goes and checks out the site and look in verse 33. What does God tell Moses? He says, take off the sandals from your feet and again, this, this, this verse is another key. It says, for the place where you are standing is, what are those last two words? Holy ground. You know, the word there for ground in, in Hebrew, it, it also could be translated as land. And so what Stephen is drawing attention to is saying, the holy land, the holy ground, it, it's not limited to, to Israel. It's not limited to the temple. It's where God's presence is. Where God's presence is. Is, is holy ground, the holy land. And so he's, 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 he's schooling them, saying, you think the temple is the only place where God's presence is contained, but God can't be contained there. Anywhere God is with his people is holy. And then he shows them that though their forefathers rejected God's chosen one through whom he gave their salvation that God was still with Moses. Look down your Bibles. He, twice, two places, in verse 27 and in verse 35, the Israelites reject Moses. Stephen said in verse in 35 and 36, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. God led his people. His presence was with his people. His presence was with the one he had chosen. There was already a foreshadowing to the fact that as Moses in the wilderness, that Jesus is the bread of life and he is the one who feeds people as a, as a true and better Moses. That's why in, in the New Testament you see two different occasions where Jesus is, is feeding people miraculously. It's so that the sea, like God was the one who gave man in the wilderness, that's something only God can do. Jesus is the one who gives them bread, and Jesus is the one who is God's manifest presence now. Stephen is subtly drawing the parallel between Moses and Jesus, this, the ruler and redeemer who leads God's people out, and later he's going to come, he's going to bring it home when he accuses them. Yet the people, they rejected Moses' leadership. They made a false god in the form of a calf, and they, they worship what their hands have made. Just like now, Stephen is, is getting at, they're worshiping what they've made and not truly worshiping God. They're worshiping this temple, and they're getting all up in arms. They're getting angry. They're getting ready to kill Stephen because they're worshiping the temple, and they're failing to worship the manifest presence of God in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came to replace the temple. There, there used to be a, a bridge outside of Washington, D.C. I lived outside of D.C. for many years, and we used to have to cross a bridge. And, and there was a bridge that was far too small for the amount of traffic that would be carried across the river. And, and so there would always be bottleneck, and, and D.C. traffic is, is known as being one of the worst in the nation. This bridge was too small. So um, all the locals were sentimentally attached to it when they came up with a plan to put a, a new 10-lane bridge right beside it. And so everybody was up in arms and protesting, and they couldn't understand why was a new, a new bridge even necessary, and, and, and why, why is this important to, to invest in? And, and then after they built this 10-lane bridge, and then they rerouted traffic through it, and it got you to the other side of the river, all the locals were happy because they realized, oh, 
that old bridge didn't get us where we were going. It, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't able to handle all the traffic. It wasn't able to handle all the commerce. And yet, this new bridge, it, it got us there in a much better way. The, the Jews, they didn't get that the old temple, it was really just a shadow that was only meant in a limited way to get them into God's presence. And yet Jesus, he's the, the super highway, if you will. He, he brings us fully into God's presence. And they missed that all together. Verses 42 and 43, Stephen, he goes on to quote the prophet Amos. And the Amos actually says that even though they had the tent of witness to God's presence with them, he effectively saying they might as well have been carrying around. That's what he, he accuses them of. You were carrying around the tent of Molech. And if you read through the Old Testament, you realize they weren't physically carrying around the tent of Molech. But what he is saying is that when they took up the tent, the tabernacle, the place where they thought God's presence was constrained to, they took that up, they were really... They were not worshiping God. They were worshiping idols because their hearts were far from God. So they might have well been taking up the tent of Molo because that's who they were worshiping in that period. And so he's showing them that it's about worshiping God from the heart. It's about recognizing and seeking after God's presence, not about carrying God around in a box. Then even though God spoke to Moses... He wasn't limited. He wasn't limited in any way. He's making the point that from Egypt to Midian, all through the desert wanderings, everywhere Moses went, God was present with him. In verses 45 and 50, look down your Bibles again. Stephen gives the example of David and Solomon. David couldn't build a temple, even though he desperately wanted to. What was David's chief desire? He really wanted to dwell in God's in God's house. He wanted to be with God. He wanted to build a temple, a place for God. And he even got stuff together and God said, no, you can't do it. And who was David? David was the anointed one. And yet, God kept him from doing that. And then Solomon was allowed to build a house for God, but he knew that God couldn't be limited to an earthly home. And that's actually what he prayed after Solomon consecrates the temple. He prays effectively, God, I'm building this house for you, but it's not like you can be contained in a house. And Stephen quotes the prophet Isaiah. He's trying to again point them to their own history and say, Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets of old, in verses 48 and 50, Isaiah said, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He's saying he's the God of all. He's the creator. He can't be confined to the work of human hands. God's a pilgrim God, as John Stott once said, who can't be restricted to any one place. His presence can't, his presence can't be localized. No, no building can confine him or inhibit his activity. His home is where his people live. His home is with his people. And in Jesus he makes, not only Jesus replaces the temple, becomes our access to God, but then we are given the Holy Spirit so that the church is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the second defense that Stephen makes in response to their false accusations is that when they said Jesus would destroy the temple, and then the second thing they said he would destroy is the law. And so Stephen is showing them that Jesus fulfills the law. So Stephen turns things around on his accusers, and he says, in effect, you think that I'm, I'm here, or Jesus is here to destroy the law. That's absolutely not true, because Jesus didn't disregard the law. He fully kept the law in every way. It was your fathers who disregarded the law. And so he points out to them their inconsistencies. In verses 27 and 35, Stephen pointed out the Israelites rejected Moses as their ruler and judge. They rejected the lawgiver. They rejected the law that God had given. And then in verses 38 through 39, Stephen makes it clear that they rejected Moses who spoke the very living oracles, the very living words, the words that were alive, they rejected. They rejected his word. And, and then twice he mentions how God's servant was thrust aside 
They thrust aside Joseph and they thrust aside Moses. They rejected the way that God provided to come to him. And they refused to obey the law and instead turned away in their hearts. Not only disobeyed Moses and rebelled, they asked Aaron, why does he give this illustration? They asked Aaron to make a golden calf for them in the wilderness to replace the law. And think of the irony of this. Where was Moses when he was when the people were having a golden calf made. Moses was up the mountain receiving the law. And yet the people were rejecting the law by making their own law, by making their own calf in his place. In Exodus 32, 8 and 11, it says, they have been quick. This is God talking about the people. It says, they've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. And here's a quote that Stephen gives us. And so if these Sanhedrin are schooled in the law, they would have recognized the quote that Stephen gives to them. And it's really God who says, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I might destroy them. Then I'll make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Later it says that Moses told the people, perhaps I could atone in some way. Perhaps God won't kill you all if I can mediate. While the people, while Moses was getting the commandments, the people were disobeying the first and second commandments. They were having another God of their own making instead of following and obeying the law. So in verse 52 of Acts 7, Stephen accuses the Sanhedrin of the same sin of being stiff-necked, and he's saying, you are not obeying the law either. You accuse me of tearing down the law? Jesus came to fulfill the law, and you, you didn't recognize it. He says, you're a stiff-necked people. And what that picture is, is that's a picture of an animal who refuses to go where the master wants them to go. It's a picture of, of a stubborn mule with his neck held tight and high when the, the, refusing to have a yoke put on him and be turned to the left or the right and going its own way. And he's saying, instead of following God's law, instead of seeing that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law, you went your own way and you're doing it now. So he's making a brilliant defense, really. And then he quotes Joseph, Moses deliberately in, in verse 37 of Acts. He said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses, the lawgiver, prophesied about Jesus, and yet they did not listen to Moses. They did not listen to Jesus. Now Christ, he says, the righteous one, was demonstrated by signs and wonders as Moses had been, but they rejected God's word. They rejected the one who came to fulfill the law. Then Stephen really brings down the gavel. He turns it around on them. And look in verse 52 and verse 53. He says, Which of the prophets did your fathers, did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So this is all part of his defense. And he's showing that no, they were the lawbreakers. All the while, Stephen's not as much giving a defense as he is testifying to Jesus Christ. That Jesus has come as the replacement of the temple. You see, they didn't see that all of their righteousness was like filthy rags standing before a king. And they were expecting that that would be good enough. That their keeping of the law, as Paul referred to, it's, it's like filthy garments. Tainted by... by by human waste. And yet Jesus came to give the righteousness of God. He's the righteous one. And he came to clothe us in his righteous robes. And he came to do what the law could never do. He's the end of the law because he perfectly kept the law and make a way, made a way into God's presence through his own merit and none of ours. That's good news for us today. This good news for them and for us was that 
Jesus came to replace the temple, to bring God's presence to God's people no matter where we go. Jesus was the perfect manifest presence of God. What was he called? God with us. God's presence with us. The temple is no longer necessary. We also are no longer confined to a limited way of, of approaching God. We now have unlimited access to God. That's good news. That's, that's why Stephen was so passionate. This is the good news that Stephen is preaching about Jesus providing a way, the way, unlimited way for us to come into God without shame, without fear. We don't have to have a mediator. We don't have to have another priest. Jesus is our high priest. He is the one mediator that we need, and he makes a way to God perfectly for us. Jesus, we don't, we don't have to be righteous on our own and, and have those filthy rags and come into God's presence and, and be ashamed and condemned. Jesus has given us the right, his own righteousness so that there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, so that we stand perfectly spotless before the king. This is the good news that Stephen's preaching. And then he finishes up. He gives an eyewitness testimony to something that he sees, but they can't see because they're blind. And he finishes up his witness, his defense, and he's, he looks up into heaven and look in Acts 7.56. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They prove them their disobedience to the law, that they don't really want the presence of God. They reject Stephen, they reject Jesus, they kill Stephen. And yet, Stephen, in his very last, is testifying that Jesus is the one who provides access to God. He's standing at the right hand of the throne of God. The heavens are opened up through Jesus. But Stephen knows this glorious reality of who Jesus is. That he replaces the temple. He fulfills the law. Stephen knows this is a truth worth dying for. Jesus is worth dying for. Do you believe that? Do you get that? Do you personally know that? Do you understand that Jesus has provided a way to God, the way to God, so that no matter where we go, we will never be apart from him. Jesus has fulfilled the law so that no matter what we do, no matter how bad we are, our hope is in an infallible place. It's in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who's standing as our advocate with the Father. But they won't listen to Stephen. They won't listen to God speaking through Stephen. They reject God. It says they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. What a vivid picture this is. I think about when I was a kid and I had, I had three siblings growing up and often they would taunt me. I was the youngest of four. And, and after a while I got fed up and I just would cover my ears and I'd start yelling, la, 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 and then I would run to, to mom and dad and I'd, I'd ignore them. They, they're, they're foolishly stopping up their ears and and because they don't want to hear him. They're, they're wrongly thinking he's blaspheming, but actually what they're not hearing is God's voice speaking to them. And so instead of listening to the life-giving words of God, they, they rush upon him. They throw him out of the city. They didn't have the right to do that, as I mentioned last week, that only the Roman consul had the right to execute. And yet in a blind rage... They disobey the law. They take him outside of the city and, and they undergo a very tedious execution, which is stoning. It doesn't happen right away. It takes a lot of work. You'll see later, actually, they have to take off their garments to stone him. It's a, it's a hot work. It's a dirty work. And they, they lay them at the feet of Saul. Later, we'll see that God will redeem even that man. And you know, something else that we need to see is that most of the time in the New Testament, when you have a picture of Jesus, it says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you notice here that Jesus is standing? I think it's a beautiful picture. Jesus isn't sitting back. He stands up with his nail-scarred hands. And he says, welcome to Stephen. 
He receives the first martyr. And through Jesus, Stephen is welcomed into God's ultimate presence. I love how F.F. Bruce put it. He said, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. You see, Stephen was not shaken. He wasn't, he wasn't fighting back. He wasn't worried. He wasn't concerned. He knew Jesus is worth dying for. He hung all his hope on that. He knew that Jesus would be his entry into God's presence forever, no matter what happened to his body. He knew that he could not be condemned, although every man condemned him. He could not be condemned by Christ. And then in verse 59 and 60, it says, As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. They didn't understand Stephen. They didn't get his history lesson. But he had taught them that Jesus was the fulfillment of both the temple and the law. And then Luke had showed us that Jesus is worth dying for. That Jesus is our guarantee of access to the Father. That he stands ready to welcome us with no condemnation into God's presence. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28? Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Jesus had told his disciples the great commission. He says, they'll go therefore. By the way, I think maybe Stephen was remembering that when he he mentioned several times throughout his history. God called Abraham to go out. God led his people out. God led his people out. And so he says, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now listen to the last part of what Jesus said. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's presence is not tied to a place. That's assurance for us as believers. See, we got the Great Commission, but as believers in that day, they needed to know that, um, God, but what about the temple? You're calling us to go out and make disciples of all nations, but, but won't that mean that we can't be with you? And he says, no, I'm going to always be with you. My, I'm not confined to a place. I'm going to always be with you to the end of the age. No matter where God's people go, Jesus goes with his people wherever they go on mission. And that's something we need to see and know for ourselves today. Wherever we go, Jesus goes with us on the mission He's called us to. No matter where we go, He will never leave us. He's not confined to a place. He is in us. He will always be with us. That should give you great confidence. No matter what opposition you face, if people stone you, you can be sure that He will stand ready to receive you. And then we can go confident that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law in himself, something we could never do ourselves. The Christian walk is a difficult one. Don't let anyone sell you a thin veil of goods that says that, you know, Jesus came to make your life perfect on earth. No. But he did come to do what you could not ever do. He came to make you one with himself. He came to make you right with God. He came to to remove God's wrath, to atone for the sins of all mankind that Moses could never atone. He couldn't atone for. He couldn't fully turn aside God's wrath, but Jesus has done that. He's our true bread of life, although our flesh may fail. If we feast on him, he'll never die. We'll not go hungry God preserved Joseph and the patriarchs in a foreign land. God will preserve us no matter where we go because his presence is always with us, no matter what famine you encounter. David longed to live in God's temple. Now we can come into God's presence freely through Jesus Christ, find mercy and grace in in time of need. If you think about it, up to this time, the church was still teaching in the temple, but God used Stephen's murder. He used it to to separate the church from the earthly temple so they'd rely on Christ, the temple. The church was shocked after this. If you keep reading in Acts by Stephen's murder and the opposition and persecution that came afterwards, 
But verse 3 of chapter 7, it really serves a motif for the whole passage. God had told Abraham, leave your home, your place of comfort. Go where I tell you and I'll be with you. What's God saying to us today? What's God saying through this passage? He's saying that he calls his people to go out to unknown place at times and to lands that God will show us. He calls us to go out and, and to preach the gospel into strange and hostile ground. But God will be with us. As Christians, we're called to leave our place of comfort, to go out, our, go out of our, our way on our mission as His disciples, but we can be confident He's always going to be with us. I think there's some other important applications that we need to make from this passage as we're closing as well. We need to see it's, it's possible and expected that people can be religious and go to church and appear good on the outside and yet not be following God and be rejecting God's presence like the rulers of God's people did. Make sure that's not true of you. I think that was also written as a warning for us. The religious leaders, those people who thought they were serving God, they, they were religious on the outside. They were far from God in their hearts. And they stood condemned by God. We need to see it's possible and expected that people can be religious and go to church and look good on the outside, yet not be following God and be rejecting His presence. You can also see that people can claim to be good and upstanding Christians and yet not be keeping God's commandments. Let's not be that sort of people. Let's love Jesus with all our hearts, minds, and souls. And then Jesus told us in John that we love Him by keeping the commandments that he's already fulfilled. And you see that people can fail to see that Jesus came to fulfill the temple and the law. To fail to see that Jesus desires to be with them as his people, that, that Jesus wants us to trust in him and not in our own merit, not in the law. That's what he has for each and every one of us today. There's great hope there. That's worth dying for. All of us need to ask ourselves, what are we trusting in? What are you trusting in? Are you following Jesus? Are you seeking his presence? Are you trusting in him as the fulfillment of the law? Are you still trying to keep the law, be good enough before God on your own? What are you living for? Are you living for a system or preference or tradition and missing Jesus? It's so easy to do that, especially in the the God-haunted South, the gospel-haunted South. All this Luke has another intent, another thread, if you will. It runs through the whole tapestry of the book of Acts. It's really the theme of the whole book of Acts, and it's that God's plans are not hindered. Jesus continues to build his church to empower his people despite all opposition, and that's what he's doing even in the midst of this opposition that Stephen is facing, even in the midst of stoning. God's promise to be with his people and bound himself to his, forever to his church the bride of Christ, and he's promised that he'll never leave us and forsake us. Jesus is calling us now as his church to go out from this land. Go out from here to preach the gospel, to take this message that Stephen carried that Jesus provides access to God. He replaces the temple that Jesus has done what we could never do. He fulfilled the law. Take this message Go out and to the places that God will show you, knowing His presence will be with you, knowing He'll empower you no matter what opposition you face, and knowing He'll make His word fruitful. He promises He'll go with us wherever we go, no matter what opposition we face, because Jesus is worth dying for, we can. Like Stephen, we might be killed. We might die in Christ. Our bodies, though, will only sleep. I love how it ends there. He fell asleep. That doesn't mean that he actually just laid down and went to sleep. What he's, what he's saying is that his, his body just momentarily is dead. It's just asleep because one day, on that, on that final day, God will raise up Stephen's body and make him new, just like the promise is there for each and every one of us who fall asleep in Christ. We can have hope knowing that he'll raise us up again. And that when we die, he welcomes us into his presence. So let's go out from here. 
knowing His presence is with us, knowing we care a me- carry a message worth dying for, trusting in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that Your Word is beautiful to us. Thank You that You reveal Yourself to us through Your Word. Father, I pray that You would make these truths deep-seated in the hearts and minds of everyone here. Father, those who are far from You, Lord, I pray would come to You through Jesus. Lord, for those of us who are in You, I pray that we would be more aware of the access that You provide to the Father. Lord, I pray for those who are stuck in their own ways, trying to fulfill the law on their own. I pray that they would repent and see that Jesus is the only way. God, for all of us who are struggling with condemnation and guilt when we fail, Lord, I pray our hope would be in you who never fails and that you stand ready to receive us gladly into God's presence. Pray these things in your name, amen. May God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, give you peace. Please go and get your kids from wherever they are. Remember the 9 to 11-year-old class. 